This is hell. Manufacturing dissent since 1996. This is hell. And you have been helping us do just that for a very, very long time, including listeners like Ty S., who sent us a guest suggestion this past weekend. Ty writes to us at Chuck at this is hell.com saying, Hi, Chuck. I seem to remember a brief discussion on a past show about finding a guest who could speak about the Stop Cop City and defend the Atlanta forest movements. So I wanted to recommend you, you interview Rachel Garbus, who wrote about the forest defenders for Luke O'Neill's Welcome to Hell World newsletter. It's a great piece of reporting that delves into the history and context of the land, as well as the recent police murder of a forest activist. Ten, uh, Ty then uh, sends us a link to an article by Rachel posted at welcometohellworld.com titled Stopping Cop City, the murder of Tortuguita and the trees that got us here, which is about the killing of the person who some say was the face of the Stop Cop City Defend the Atlanta Forest Movement. Following the killing of Tortuguita, Georgia Governor Brian Kemp declared a state of emergency and called in a thousand National Guard troops. So we took Ty up on his recommendation. We start this week by trying to figure out what is happening in the Defend the Forest campaign with Atlanta-based writer and editor Rachel Garbus, who posted the Welcome to the Hellhole article, Stopping Cop City, the Murder of Tortuguita, and the Trees that Got Us Here. Rachel is a writer at Atlanta Magazine, culture editor at Wussy Mag, a queer art and pop culture biannual print rag, which you can find at Wussy Mag. Dot com. Rachel is co-founder of the Atlanta LGBTQ Plus History Project, a multimedia exhibit and archival collection celebrating the lives of notable LGBTQ Plus Atlantans from yesterday and today. She's also co-founder of Out Down South, a multimedia history project and podcast celebrating the stories of LGBTQ Plus Southerners. She's on Twitter at Rachel underscore Garbus, G-A-R-B-U-S. You can find out more about Rachel at rachelgarbus.com. Thank you, Ty, for suggesting we have Rachel on the show. And thanks to past guest Luke O'Neill, who connected us with Rachel. Luke runs the again the Welcome to Hell Hole Hell World, Welcome to Hellworld.com website, writes at it, and was on our show back in 2019 to talk about his book titled, You Guessed It. Welcome to Hell World. You too can email us at chuck at thisishell.com, message us via Facebook at facebook.com slash thisishellradio, or tweet at us at thisishellradio, and uh, tell us who we should have on the show or share a topic you'd like us to discuss, and we'll do our best to have your recommended guest or suggested topic featured on the show. It's the very least we can do for you, as This Is Hell is completely listener-supported, so we couldn't do this without your help. We will be sharing more of what you have to say shortly. I am your Bitter Blind Broke Gap Tooth radio show, live streaming and podcast host, Chuck Mertz. Producing is our new Monday producer, Lindsay Gorey. Welcome to Monday's Lindsay. Don't they suck? They're not that bad, right? I don't know. So so being here at 930 on uh, Monday morning has not changed your schedule very much? Not really. I, I don't know. I don't sleep in super late most days so yeah i, <laughs> I don't know <laughs> anything else new about you <laughs> well i went to uh archie's on saturday was it saturday yes yeah, saturday night and uh i was wearing my this is hell hat and uh roberta the owner there said that she's a 
fan of the show. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. Have you ever been there? No, I've never been there. Where is Archie's? It's right next to the Loyola train stop. It's on Loyola. It's just like, or, or like really close to where you enter the train from Loyola. I know the place you're talking about. No, I've never been in there. So what were you doing there? Just hanging out and drinking or seeing a band or? Well, they had a band. I was on my way to another show in Lakeview. So me and my friend just got food. They have, I think they have like a dip. Roberta like makes a different menu like every night or so. Um, But it was really good. And um, yeah, there was a live band. It just was playing later than I was there they have like a jam session i think every friday like jazz jam and then saturday night i guess they have live music as well so if roberta from archie's is listening thank us for your free plug my weekend (laughs) started by finally seeing the surveillance video from last week when i walked into the closed bar downstairs to feed Mel the bar cat and apparently scared off a thief. And Lindsay, your description of the way the thief was moving around, sneaking into the bar, uh, past the guy who was cleaning who didn't notice him, then ducking behind the pool table and then behind bar stools, then giving, uh, going up to the bar while the cleaner had his back turned, stealing his wallet. You said it was like uh, the way you move around in The Legend of Zelda. And it was. It was really creepy. It made me think that that guy was playing video games like crazy or was had some sort of military training or something it was creepy wasn't it yeah like if anybody's played legend of zelda i'm i'm referring to ocarina of time when the when you're a little kid trying to sneak into the castle like and duck all the guards and stuff it was like that (laughs) it was very creepy when you watch the surveillance video you can see mel the cat being the only one in the room who notices the thief. Maybe that's why they call them cat burglars because only cats notice them. But Mel is staring at him and uh, whenever the uh, thief moves out of his view, Mel follows this guy. In the video when I enter, it looks like I see the thief but the cleaning guy still has not. And I watch as the thief walks out the door. I didn't say anything at the time as when the thief was leaving because I figured if the cleaner wasn't saying anything to him, it must be some guy who was working with him or making some kind of delivery. You know, it's none of my business because it's not my business, so I I do my best to not get involved with anything to do with the bar. But an hour later, I got a phone call from Pete, who owns Carrie's Lounge, the bar downstairs from us. The cleaner couldn't find his wallet. Pete asked if I had accidentally picked it up. I told him no, but asked about the other guy working with the cleaner that morning. And that's when I learned that there was no other guy working that morning. So they went back to the tape and saw the cat burglar. And I have been freaking out ever since I saw that tape. I keep looking around for crouching ninjas, and I am definitely paying a lot more attention to Mel's body language. Yesterday, when I was doing my laundry in my own basement, I was looking around for, like, dudes crawling around and (laughs) watching me. It was all very weird. So, anyway, more important than a uh, creepy video of a cat burglar ninja stealing Wayne's wallet. Lindsay, what is this week's question from hell for our listeners? This week's question from hell is, what culture war battle should this is hell pile on to get popular? (laughs) You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page. You can email it to us. You can tweet it at us. But we must have your answer by the end of this week's show when we are announcing this week's winner following a brand new moment of truth from contributor Jeff Dorchin. If your answer is our favorite, you get your choice of This Is Hell merchandise, which you can find right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. Brave enough to be streaming live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we can be a regular part of your weekly hangover, This Is Hell. And Lindsay has this week's Hangover Cure. 
This week's hangover cure is a French hangover cure may surprise you, according to an article by that name at mash.com by Amy Hamblin. Hamblin writes, you might be familiar with the hot, cheesy goodness that is French onion soup, but have you ever eaten it to prevent a hangover? Not only is French onion soup served at weddings in the country of its namesake, with, as Salon.com puts it, the questionable goal of lining the stomach after all that champagne, but some couples are even awoken from slumber on their wedding night just to eat the soup. That's disgusting. Apparently, waking up a bride and groom in the wee hours of the morning to eat French onion soup is a long-standing French tradition because, according to the Chicago Tribune, legend says eating onion soup after imbibing alcohol prevents a hangover. (laughs) The writer Hamblin then asks, But will the soup actually cure a hangover? A look at the ingredients in a French onion soup recipe may provide some clues to how it acquired its hangover healing reputation. The onions in the soup contain an amino acid that can help the liver discard toxins, according to The Atlantic, while the salt can help with those lost electrolytes, according to Healthline. As for that yummy Gruyere cheese, according to Spoon University, (laughs) (laughs) I've never heard of Spoon University, but (laughs) the health benefits of cheese include providing proteins, enzymes, and calcium, as well as coating the stomach to help relieve nausea. Though French onion soup might not exactly be a miracle cure, we'd certainly be open to having a bowl or two just to test it out. That makes this week's hangover cure, according to Mashed Salon, the Chicago Tribune, the Atlantic, and Healthline, and Soup University. (laughs) French onion soup. Spoon University. So Spoon University, do they teach you how to eat French onion soup at Spoon University? Is it all about the mastery of the spoon? I don't know why you're asking me. I want to know. the article. (laughs) You got to Google this next time. Next time, I I should (laughs) have. I guess I can Google it now, but I'm just trying to save battery on my mouth, so I'll get back to you. (laughs) So I am absolutely certain French onion soup has been featured as a hangover cure on our show in the past, but I think it was like 20 years ago, and it did not include the French tradition of the bride and groom waking up in the middle of their wedding night to eat French onion soup, which is not what I would want to be doing in the middle of my wedding night. Can you imagine after having wedding night sex, your newly betrothed spouse reaches over to the nightstand and hands you a steaming bowl of French onion soup after doing it? That's not the worst thing they could hand you. (laughs) That's true. That's true. (laughs) But it still would freak me out. Uh, I mean, what's next? What are they going to offer me next? A baguette? I just don't know. I thought that one was going to make you reconsider the marriage thing. (laughs) That exactly. The whole, I love French onion soup. So much, I am. Deci- I've decided I am going to be married. So we received an email from a past correspondent on our show, Ed Sutton, a luthier from Minnesota, who was originally reporting for us from Switzerland, and then when he was working with refugees, helping them over uh, the border into southeastern Europe. Uh, through the Balkans. Uh, Ed writes, Hey Chuck, and this is Hell Staff, just listening to this most recent uh, Brian Muir interview, and God damn, he's good. Have y'all stayed in touch with Kevin Harris, another past uh, regular correspondent on your show? Uh, remember you had those guys from all over the world. They were all so good in my recollection. I loved getting those kinds of on-the-ground reports from down-to-earth people. I hasten to add I'm not talking about myself, even though I did a few such segments when I lived abroad. That is also to say I understand how people's lives move and nothing is forever. 
But if any of your other foreign cor- former correspondents are still in touch, available, etc., I think it would be awesome to hear from them again. I can't tell if the show at some point decided to move away from these more informal international updates, but I kind of miss them. Anyway, mostly I'm just trying to say hi because I haven't in a while. You guys are doing great. The pandemic has kept me away from travel almost entirely, especially travel to other urban settings. If I uh, leave Minneapolis at all, it's into the woods for the last three entire years, and I feel like I'd lost touch with a lot of people, like so many others have as well. Of course, uh, I wish I weren't such a weenie about it sometimes, like when I hear about your anniversary parties and other gatherings at Carrie's Lounge, I'd like to hang out with y'all again. Also, I might resume uh, pushing guest recommendations on you. I'm finding my footing again in anarchist media work after a tumultuous few years in Minnesota. To begin with, may I suggest Andrea Gliotti and Estella Carpi. They are researchers in Italy who have been writing really impressive stuff about social movements and capitalism, etc., but are struggling to break out of the academic bubble with their work. I just posted an article by Andrea at antidotezine.com and previously posted one by Estrella. Uh, Writing together, both are about the anarchist theory of Omar Aziz in some sense. And I only now found out about Estrella's website, but it looks amazing. I can make introductions if you want, but they're both findable. Uh, here's looking forward to the barrel of a sorry, here's looking down the barrel of a terrifying 2023. Warm greetings, Ed. So the January 14th Antidote Zine post Ed links to at antidotezine.com is titled Same Different, a Comparative Study of Kurdish-led Rojava and Opposition-led Syria. Uh, thanks, Ed. We haven't discussed Rojava since the last time Dillard Dirick was on the show, so you always send great guest suggestions. So we really appreciate it. As for correspondence, we try to constantly mix things up a bit, so we're always changing, making slight changes on the show. For instance, Rotten History was a regular segment for years, then disappeared for like a decade until Ronaldo Magaldi revived it. And it's now, again, one of listeners' favorite segments. So who, who knows? Maybe we'll get back in touch with some of the correspondents. My understanding is none are still in a Cambodian prison that we know of. So that's a good start. Coming up on the show, we'll try to wrap our minds around why Georgia's governor has called in the National Guard and declared a state of emergency because a few dozen locals are camping out in trees to protect a forest from being torn down and a police training center from being put in its place. We'll tell you what happened on our most recent episode of This Is Hell on Patreon exclusively for subscribers at patreon.com slash this is hell. We'll have more of uh, our sponsor. We'll have more words from our sponsor. And as we are completely listener supported, our sponsor is, well, you, including some very kind words from some of you. And we will tell you what's happening the rest of this week here on This Is Hell. The planet's on fire and the cops are apparently making certain it burns. This is hell. Atlanta is fighting forests. Forest. I know, I had no idea Atlanta even had forests, let alone that they were in danger from the construction of a new police training center. Nor did I have any idea that a city that promised police reforms following the killing of George Floyd was endowing the cops with a shiny new nearly $100 million training facility. Here to help us understand exactly what is happening in Atlanta with the police and the environment, Atlanta-based writer and editor Rachel Garbus posted the Welcome to the Hell World article. Stopping Cop City, the murder of Tortuguita, and the trees that got us here. Welcome to This is Hell, Rachel. 
Hi, Chuck. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you so much for being on the show. You begin your article by writing that the trees are still standing for now, most of them at least. Acres and acres of trees, uh, vertiginous uh, loblolly pines and sprawling box elder maples here and there, and oak thicker than a, a tractor wheel forking into two, three, four limbs that climb towards the canopy on the banks of the South River and the creeks that feed it, river birch proliferates. I mean, the way that you describe it is absolutely stunning. And at the website of Defend the Atlanta Forest, which describes itself as an autonomous movement for the future of South Atlanta, they state that Atlanta is a city in a forest. What impact will deforestation in Southeast Atlanta have on life in Atlanta, the actual lived experience? Because I don't think when, generally, if people have never visited Atlanta, they don't think of forests when they think of Atlanta. So what? how would life in Atlanta change without these forests? Yeah, I think that's such a great question. And it's such an important thing to lead with, too, because the story is about policing, it's about brutality, it's about racial injustice, but it is really also an environmental justice story. Um, Atlanta, it has a huge tree canopy. It's actually called the city in the forest. Uh, it has this pretty diffuse decentralized design, which is why it's a nightmare for traffic, but it also is very neighborhood focused with a lot of dense tree canopy. Of course, a lot of that tree canopy is getting lost uh, every day. Atlanta is a city with runaway gentrification, huge development, lots of big corporations coming in, um, a lot of um, not necessarily affordable housing coming in, but a lot of multi-use uh, condos as we see them popping up everywhere. So trees are getting lost everywhere. And then you see a lot of the environmental um, damage that comes along with that. We have these heat islands with too much concrete where heat just really hovers over the city, less shade. Um, less biodiversity, you see birds disappearing, animals. Atlanta, surprisingly, is a city where you see deer walking through town, foxes, coyotes. I mean, it's a place that historically has really had nature in the heart of it, um, but that's becoming less and less the case as development really outstrips the pace of protection. We have some really amazing organizations here devoted to protecting trees. Trees Atlanta has been really big about protecting existing trees, planting new trees. Um, and there's been some push to make sure that development includes protecting of trees. But um, as none of your listeners, I'm sure, are surprised to hear, that is often the first thing to go when um, a big, promising, expensive development comes along. So, And the city, uh, the part of the city where co the COP City, this planned Atlanta Police and Fire Safety Training Center would be built, is in southeast Atlanta, a predominantly Black part of the city. It's actually a little bit outside of the city, which I'm sure we can talk about a little bit, which has been a big part of how this got created it's outside Atlanta city limits. Um, this is uh, an incredible, huge forest of trees that exists, uh, but in a place that uh, where there is a lot of deforestation already happening. So this forest is really, really important. It's also, I should note that the creation of Cup City, as it's proposed, would not involve taking all of this forest away, but it would be a really important part of that forest um, and would splinter into several different pieces what was supposed to be a park for people. So instead of uh, a park for people in the middle of this forest, if this goes according to plan, um, there will be an 85-acre police playground instead. <laughs> 
And I imagine all these corporations moving into Atlanta, all this development has probably led to gentrification. All these things are probably very good for the bottom line of Atlanta's economy. How much is Atlanta's economy in conflict with the desires of the people of Atlanta? Yeah, I think that is huge. I mean, you've hit that right on the head. That's what everybody has been talking about for the last few years. Um, Georgia's has a, has had a really runaway few years revenue-wise. The governor, Brian Kemp, as you mentioned, um, who just won his second term against Stacey Abrams, is coming in with a budget surplus. Atlanta is booming. I think um, some major finance magazine listed Atlanta as like one of the best places to live, highest quality of living, you know, obviously speaking to a very particular slice of people. Um, this is a city that has historically been predominantly black. Um, it dipped under 50% black in the last 10 or 15 so years because that gentrification has brought in waves of um, higher income white folks moving into the city. So that's really changed. And it's so often been a frustration for people who live here just to see um, the privileging of big business, the privileging of corporate space, the you know kowtowing to corporate interests over the communities that already live here. So gentrification is a huge issue. Um, the city is you know always very eager for economic development, bringing in business, um, looking like a a hot new place to bring your tech startup. And, you know, all of that is bringing in revenue, but then the question is, where is that revenue being funneled to and what communities are being displaced in service to that revenue? So that's a big part of the story. You mentioned this earlier, and I want to make sure we touch on it and we don't forget. So why was this built outside of Atlanta? What did that allow the uh, constructor, the developers to do that they might not have been allowed to do within Atlanta? Mm -hmm. So Atlanta is, the city of Atlanta has very specific city borders. And then you have Metro Atlanta, which encompasses a few different counties outside of the city. So you may have an address that says Atlanta, Georgia, but you're actually in um, outside of city limits in what's known as an unincorporated county. So that's the case where Cop City would be built, this South River Forest, also referred to as Weelani Forest, um, which is the Muscogee Creek indigenous traditional name for the river um, and for the surrounding forest. So South River Forest is the contemporary name, Wilani Forest, is something that a lot of activists use. This forest and the spot that the that Atlanta owns is actually an unincorporated DeKalb County, which is a little bit southeast of Atlanta city limits. So because it was an unincorporated DeKalb County, um, but the land itself was owned by the city of Atlanta because it had been um, the Atlanta prison farm for about 100 years from about 1912 to the 1990s when it shut down. It was um, a forced labor camp for incarcerated people, mostly black men, mostly poor, um, was known for being a notorious site. Um, a lot of people died there, um, but Atlanta owned that land. So when the at least Atlanta Police Foundation came looking for a place to build their new training center, uh, they landed on this land. But because it's outside of Atlanta, the people who live in unincorporated DeKalb around it don't have any representation on Atlanta City Council. And it was Atlanta City Council that had um, the sole discretion to vote to approve this uh, police training center. So there 
it passed in September 2021. It was 10 to 4. There was a lot of public comment, a lot of people in DeKalb County who didn't want it, who came to protest, um, but who didn't have any representation. Lots of people who live within the city of Atlanta who also didn't want this to be built, um, who sent in lots of public comment. They estimate that about 70% of public comments during a very brief open comment period that city council held before the vote um, about 70% of those people were against it, uh, but it did end up passing 10 to four. And once it was passed, there was very little that people in this area around where the site will be built, um, there was little anybody could do about it. They did create uh, a committee, like a stakeholder advisory committee, they've called it, where they brought in folks from surrounding neighborhoods, a representative from the DeKalb County Commissioner's Office. Uh, those people had no authority beyond offering recommendations. And in fact, the only person who was put on that committee from DeKalb County Commissioner's Office who ended up speaking out against it was later removed from the advisory committee. So you just see a real disregard for public opinion, a real breakdown of the political democratic system, um, and a real strategic use of land that's outside of Atlanta in order to create this, because had it been inside Atlanta, you'd have had much, many more layers of public uh, outreach, uh, NPUs, neighborhood planning units is a big thing in Atlanta, a lot more period for public comment, a much longer process in order to approve it. But because this site is outside of the city, you they were really able to circumvent a lot of that and really push this through over really strident public opposition. So is this are, are these protests because democracy failed that that the protesters did everything by the book that they followed all the steps that they were supposed to take in order to air their grievances but in the end democracy failed them and so there was no vote on this there was no referendum and that led to the protests are these protests the result of democracy failing the people of DeKalb County yeah, absolutely, Chuck. I think that I think that's really spot on. And I think everybody who is inside this movement, this is a really diffuse movement. You know, obviously, mainstream media, very crime focused, very fear based, um, has really been focused on incidents of any kind of violent altercation between protesters who are occupying the trees and police and this task force led by Georgia Bureau of Investigation. Um, violence that we should know has involved, you know, burning cars and tagging graffiti on those cars and throwing rocks. You know, the level of violence was such so below what ended up being called domestic terrorism, as they've been charged with. Um, so that's really been from the media, from mainstream media's perspective, the face of this movement. But this is a huge movement. There are a lot of people involved here. Many of them are families. Many of them are children. There's a preschool located near the forest. Um, and those families have been really involved, kids leading their own protests, making their own signs. You know, there are a lot of racial justice organizations out here. People really feel like this was absolutely a breakdown of democracy. And people were very quick to note that um, that protesters who don't want Cop City built have used every tool available to them in the peaceful protester toolbook, um, from you know picketing outside city council to offering public comment to writing into the mayor's office to contacting the Atlanta Police Foundation. You know that to uh, the Atlanta Press Collective has done exhaustive research on demonstrating the history of this place, what the community stands to lose. I mean, there's been a real grassroots peaceful, legal protest against this, and none of it has made a difference. Um, and then, of course, it only takes a few rocks thrown for the police state to decide, you know, this is this has got to go um, and really use the full 
use of force in order to break it down. So I think um, there's been such focus, as I mentioned in the story, um, after Chorchuguito was murdered by this Atlanta uh, task force of GBI, Atlanta Police Department, a few others, um, there were protests several days later. There was one cop car that got burned, but there was a picture of that burning cop car on every single news outlet everywhere in the country. Um, it's really, it always, I think, as we see with a lot of these movements, what really is a huge coalition of people united against this use of violence against the people ends up becoming illustrated by very, very small specific instances um, of violence to demonstrate that an entire movement um, is you know immoral and and needs to be dealt with in that way. So, is the problem the law by by the law? Are they are these protesters legally domestic terrorists by committing property damage? Is that what the law in Georgia states? Is the problem uh, not just the interpretation of the law, but the law itself? So this is really interesting, and this is something that I learned in reporting this piece for Welcome to Hell World. So, everybody I talked to agrees that charging these forest defenders with domestic terrorism is insane. I mean, it's just a complete uh, distortion of what is actually happening. Uh, and so far, DeKalb County prosecutors, I, I believe there will be Fulton County prosecutors now involved because some of the protesters who were charged with domestic terrorism were doing so in downtown Atlanta, which would be Fulton County. So far, we've only heard from DeKalb County prosecutors who have defended the domestic terrorism charges. This stems from a change in Georgia's state uh, legal code about what constitutes domestic terrorism. And as I mentioned in the article, that change happened after the Charleston massacre, where a white supremacist killed nine parishioners in a church in South Carolina. So after that, the state legislature wanted to give prosecutors more room to um, go after um, people who perpetrate hate crimes. And so they expanded the domestic terrorism statute, which previously, I think you had you know, very macabre way of looking at this, but you have to kill 15 people. They wanted to make the standard lower, basically to give prosecutors more leeway to prosecute violent hate crimes. And during debate, people in the legislature, some, some lawmakers were worried that by loosening um, the threshold for domestic terrorism, you could really charge people left and right with this if you wanted to do so for political purposes. And, um, during those debates, the response was, well, prosecutors would never do that. Now, as we're seeing, that's exactly what happened. DeKalb County prosecutors have charged these folks with domestic terrorism. So we'll see what happens. I, it, it's very clear that this is a scare tactic, that this is very much a way to try to escalate the situation, to keep folks away, to scare them, to make this feel like, oh, this is a dangerous movement of, of violent terrorists um, and really justify clearing people out. Um, but the you know, civil rights, civil liberties attorneys I've talked to have said this is this is really a miscarriage of justice. This is not what this statute is supposed to be for. And that always seems to happen. There is some sort of violent, horrible situation that is conducted by somebody who is on the far right. And then all of a sudden they come up with an anti-terror law that seems to be targeting people who are on the left. That seems to happen each and every mm -hmm. time. And then there are, you know, liberals will be supportive of the new uh, terror law because they think that, oh, well, it must be even handed. And every time they seem to be used in a very, very political way. Here in Chicago, Mayor Lori Lightfoot ran on a campaign opposing 
the West Garfield Park uh, Police Training Center. Once elected, she did an about-face and not only uh, supported the facility, but she actually expanded it. Despite that, Mayor Lightfoot is the favorite to win in the upcoming mayoral election. How politically untenable is opposition to police training centers? Because back here, back in uh, November on the show, we spoke with historian Austin McKay, uh, McCoy, who argues uh, the uh, alliance of local government and the police is unassailable. Would you agree with that statement, especially when it comes to Atlanta? And do you think that relationship is, as Austin says, unassailable? That is, the police government relationship is unable to be attacked, questioned, or defeated by even an elected uh, representative like the mayor of Atlanta? Yeah, I, I do. I think unassailable, I think, is a very fair word. Yeah, I think. Um, our current mayor, Andre Dickens, um, he didn't campaign against the the cop city proposal. He actually was one of the city council members when he was a city councilor prior to becoming mayor who did vote for it. Um, he's really trying to thread the needle that I imagine Mayor Lori Lightfoot is that you see a lot of progressive mayors do when they are also completely beholden to their police forces, which is sort of try to run as a progressive mayor um, in some respects, you know, when I've interviewed his his team before for other articles and uh, and they sort of loosely describe him as a progressive. But on this issue, he he certainly was never a vocal defender of this forest, a vocal critic of Cop City. And he certainly has has not stepped up in any way. And because of these protests that happened following the murder of Tortuguita, all we've seen from city, from most of city leadership, I should say, is um, a real vocal condemnation of cop car burning again, one cop car, um, and and nothing about the the murder of a protester. We we also haven't seen it from from state leaders either. I mean, Brian Kemp is sort of next generation ultra conservative. He's he's also threading his own conservative Republican needles. Um, but but it's just crime, crime, crime all the time from Southern Republicans. I mean, they they run on it, they went on it, they hammer it into the ground. They cannot, they, they have no thing to lose by being tough on crime. But even our our US senators, Sean Ossoff and Raphael Warnock, haven't issued any statements um criticizing anything that's happened with Cop City and have really only come out to uh, condemn this these small acts of violence that happened during these protests. So yeah, I think you've seen that. I think city council, we've had a few, there's been a turnover. We had elections in 2020, um, three new city council members who all ran as critics of the police training center of Cop City. Um, three of them were able to take seats. Um, two of those seats um, had previously been held by people who were really vocal uh, supporters of the cop city, one of whom voted against it, um, but she did lose her seat. So there's three of them now who are on city council who have been vocal against it, who have been really receptive to the community saying, we don't want this. Is there anything we can do? The latest I've heard um, from new city council member Liliana Bakhtiari, who is personally critical of Cop City and says that she's working to find solutions, but says that they, city council does not have the power now to backtrack on this. So that's the latest that I've heard from city council. So while there is some pushback within city council, um, it doesn't sound like that is gonna be enough to overturn this alone. And it certainly doesn't look like Mayor Andre Dickens is interested in, in wading into this any more than he already has.
You were mentioning the historical context of the place where the police training center is going to be built. As Defend the Atlanta Force Coalition states, in the 1800s, shortly after the land was stolen from the Muskegee Creek peoples, it was used as a plantation. Considering that history, land stolen from Native Americans turned into a plantation that had slaves, then a prison farm, and now a dumping ground for the police. What message, intentionally or not, do you think is sent to the public, and especially the community immediately surrounding the site, when the city puts a police training center in that spot, again, considering all the historical connotations? Because here in uh, Chicago, with the West Garfield Park situation, it was the exact same thing. They put it in the middle of an area that has black, brown, and low-income community surrounding it. So what do you, what message do you think is being sent in Atlanta to the public who uh, surrounds the uh, site for the police training facility, what message is being sent when you're putting a police uh, training facility on that site with that historical context? Oh, I think the message is incredibly intentional. And I think that that is is part of of why this exists at all. I think it sends the message that you are part of the city that that will be surveyed, uh, that will be incarcerated at the first signs of resistance, and that you are fundamentally uh, a class of workers who are in service to another class of people uh, who exist in another part of the city where there are no police. I mean, a part of the Atlanta and the Cop City story that's really important to understand is the role of Buckhead, which some of your listeners may have heard there was a, a very high profile push to to secede, um, as they themselves call it, uh, from the city of Atlanta. Buckhead is a really rich, mostly white, uh, sort of quasi-suburb of Atlanta. It is in the city of Atlanta. It was annexed in 1952 in order to protect white majority rule in the city at a time when the city was becoming uh, more mixed race and then ultimately predominantly black. Annexed into the city in 1952 has always remained predominantly white and very wealthy. This is where you've got your, you know, Carter baby clothes headquarters. This is Lenox Mall, you know, big money, big estates, lots, you know, you drive down some of these roads, these houses look like Versailles. Um, this is a really wealthy part of the city and they uh, are all about being tough on crime. They have really wanted the city to crack down on so-called water boys who are these young teenage black boys who sell water to make money. There are you know, not a lot of jobs for them in their neighborhoods. So this is a community that's really pushed for more policing. This is where you see a lot of the Atlanta Committee for Progress, it's called, um, which is a coalition of private corporations. Lots of board members are you know, executives from private corporations and the city um, that's been Atlanta Committee for Progress has been a huge part of fundraising for Cop City, has been a big proponent of more policing. This is an entirely different part of the city, and it's a huge part of the reason why we have Cop City. But of course, nobody's going to build a Cop City in the middle of Buckhead. You know, Buckhead has a lot of wealth. They have a lot of power. They have a lot of voice. They want these cops. They want to protect their property, but they, of course, want to do it far, far away from them. So, yeah, I think the fact that, as you said in Chicago, the fact that um, a place where there's going to be firing ranges, Black Hawk helicopter landings, you know, cop mock city for with convenience stores and and store and schools and places for cops to you know practice dangerous 
driving maneuvers and how to kettle protesters into enclosed areas in order to arrest them all. You know, it's no coincidence that a site that is going to be a site of practicing violence and practicing police suppression is happening far away from the wealthy white people who have asked for it and will happen within the community of people who have been at the receiving end of of centuries of this kind of mistreatment and neglect. So yeah, uh, what's also interesting is that this in 2017, there was a proposal to turn this forest into this big park to preserve it, to connect private and public land, to make more walking trails, to make it more accessible. And the fact that the South River Forest or Wilani Forest, as it's also called, was in this part of Atlanta that is predominantly black, predominantly lower income, um, that was intentional, was saying, this is a site where there has been all kinds of neglect and degradation. This is an opportunity for us to take this site and turn it into something different for the people who live here. So there really was a glimmer of hope a few years ago that this was going to be um, a real investment in that community, a real giving back to that community. And instead, um, right, in the same way that domestic terrorism charges ended up coming after leftist protesters instead of right-wing murderers as they're intended for, you know, you see the tail end of the racial justice uprisings in 2020 result, not in any police reform, but in a proposed 85 acre, 90 million cop city for them to practice their driving tactics. You write that the city would lease the land in the forest to the Atlanta Police Foundation for $10 a year and contribute $30 million to the training center, while the foundation privately raised the other $60 million, mostly through large contributions from major Atlanta-based corporations like Delta, like Home Depot, Carter's, and UPS. The Atlanta Police Foundation president, Dave Wilkerson, promised the sprawling new complex would serve as, quote, a beacon of 21st century policing. I have no idea what that means. What does that mean? Do you have any clue as to what a beacon of 21st century policing means other than more cops? Uh, yeah, nothing good for all of us, Chuck. I can assure you that. That's kind of what I figured. That didn't sound good from the beginning there. So we are speaking with a yeah. based writer and editor, Rachel Garbus, who posted the Welcome to the Hell World article, Stopping Cop City, the murder of Tortuguita and the trees that got us here. Uh, you can find out more about Rachel at her website, rachelgarbus.com. She's on Twitter at Rachel underscore Garbus. Thanks to Ty for suggesting Rachel as a guest and to Luke O'Neill at welcometohellworld.com for helping us connect with Rachel. So let's get to the killing of Tortuguita because this is just an incredibly sad story. As The Guardian reported on Wednesday, January 18th, around 9.04 a.m., an as-yet-unarmed officer or officers had shot and killed Manuel Turan, known as Tortuguita. The shooting occurred in an operation involving uh, dozens of officers from Atlanta Police, DeKalb County Police, Georgia State uh, Patrol, the Georgia Bureau of Investigation, and the FBI. So... Had there been raids like this in the past, why did this raid happen at that time? Why now? Yeah, so there things really started escalating in October. The task force that you mentioned from the Guardian article was organized in October. So it should be noted that the the forest defenders, this response has really worked, you know, occupying these trees, which is also important to note, these are environmental justice tactics we've seen for a very, very long time, um, people occupying land in order to stop it from being destroyed. This is the first time we've seen an environmental justice activist engage in this kind of activity killed at the hands of the state in the U.S. This is something that happens all over the world, Brazil, Colombia, there are really terrible and consistent 
murders of environmental justice activists. This is the first time this has happened in the U.S., so I do think that is a really important part of this story. Um, that said, this protest tactic had worked in delaying the beginning deconstructing of this site, you know, destroying the Atlanta prison farm buildings that are still around, taking down trees. All of that has been delayed by forest defenders occupying the land. So it has been a successful strategy for um, going on a year. And then this um, police presence started really escalating its militarized response in October, convening this task force of multiple different agencies. And then in December, raiding the forest, um, December 13th, at the end of 2022 and December 14th, went in, um, you know, you had a lot of these forest defenders living in trees pretty high in the air, you know, 50, 60, 70 feet in the air, and these tree sits that they built. So um, the task force tried to figure out how to get them down. They ended up just literally spraying tear gas just directly into this tree sits for hours and hours and hours until, you know, the forest defenders eventually came down, threatened to cut the trees down with them sitting in them, cut their ropes. They were able to eventually get six, five of them on December 13th and one more the next day, um, brought them to DeKalb County where they were charged with multiple crimes, including domestic terrorism. Those Five of those six were able to get out on bond. Um, Atlanta Solidarity Fund has been really uh, a big part of, of helping get these um, those charged uh, with bond to get out of jail and also to connect them with counsel. So if you're interested in supporting this movement, Atlanta Solidarity Fund is a great resource to check out. They're doing really important, um, really critical work right now and just helping with these the, the folks who've been arrested and charged. So that was the first raid. After that, um, they have sent in uh, construction crews to try to clear out some of these tree sits, to try to destroy some of the encampments that are in the forest. Um, so that happened over the course of a few weeks at the end of December and January. And then on January 18th, as you mentioned, um, they sent in another task force of raids, you know, and these are like full SWAT teams coming in, you know, armed with, you know, full SWAT team response. Um, and the details beyond that, Chuck, we we don't really know what happened. We know that uh, a team of this task force went in. We know that Georgia State Patrol was involved because it was a Georgia State Patrol trooper who was shot, though that person survived. We don't know their name. We don't know the names of any of the officers involved. And we know that Tortuguita ended up shot and, and died on the scene there in the forest. Um, and that's kind of all the information we have now because GBI has refused to release any more information. That first they said there were no body cam um, active on the site because the agencies that were involved didn't have body cameras. That turned out not to be true because some of the agencies involved are mandated to wear body cams. So they changed their story a few days later and said, actually, there is body cam footage, but not of the actual shooting only of the aftermath, and we're not going to release it anyways. So there, it's still really unclear exactly what happened. GBI released a photo of a gun that they said, um, Manuel Turan Tortuguita, as they're known, um, purchased legally several months ago and said that they had found the records for that. So folks who knew Tortuguita were very surprised to hear that. They say that this was a person who was very committed to nonviolent defense, was was very cautious of the way that any act of violence would be perceived by the outside community and perhaps make the forest defenders lose public support. So a lot of people were really shocked to hear it, but we don't know much more information beyond that. 
So it's really been since October that we've really seen this escalation. And obviously in January, that led to the death of this person who, you know, I had been reporting on this story for for only a few weeks. I didn't know very many forest defenders. When we heard that somebody had been killed, I, I really didn't expect to know them given how diffuse this movement is. But but George Ugita is really well known. I mean, this is a person who's given interviews to The Bitter Southerner, to Atlanta Magazine, um, has really been a public face of the movement and really been um, just so present in welcoming people into the forest, really sharing this story, you know, just a person who was was very much well known within the stop in cop city and defend the Atlanta forest movement. So the protesters that you spoke with, did any of them give you a sense that at least they felt like Tortuguita may have been targeted? Um, I mean, being the face of the movement, I, you know, being in the public yeah. eye. That's a good point. I I haven't heard that. That's a really good question. I haven't heard that directly. I don't get the sense that um, that the police task force necessarily had the kind of specific information about who was there when and where. I mean, this is a movement that's entirely on signal and has been very, very careful to stay out of that. But it's true that Tortuguita was really a public face of the movement. So I can't say anybody told me that directly, but I'm certain that that's a question that people have. You mentioned the Atlanta Solidarity Fund, and you point out in your article that they started in 2015. This is during the time of the beginning of the Black Lives Matter movement, uh, the movement for Black Lives, I should say. And uh, you also uh, you know, were mentioning how there isn't much information that has been released yet about the killing of Tortuguita. So the Atlanta Solidarity Fund that starting in 2015 would suggest that there has been uh, an, an increase in activism and protests in the Atlanta area. So you would think that protesters and activists right now would be pressuring uh, the police department, the Georgia Bureau of Investigation and others to either look into the shooting or to release more evidence about it. You would think that there would be local media pressure from places like the Atlanta journal Constitution. But apparently, uh, one of the producers on the show was telling me the other day that he was reading an article about the Defend the Forest movement. And at the very end, it said the Atlanta Journal-Constitution was a sponsor of the police training center, apparently. So how much media pressure, local media pressure, is taking place right now to get information from the police about Tortuguita's uh, killing? Or the media has been very, uh, you know, they're very supportive of the police department. Is the media kind of dropping the ball on the investigation? Yeah, I, I think that's a really huge and important part of the story that that is is so important not to miss. So the Atlanta Journal Constitution is really the you know the high note. You know, that's the newspaper, legacy newspaper in Atlanta. And they're owned by Cox Enterprises, whose CEO and president, Alex Taylor, is on the board of um, the Atlanta Committee for Progress, which, as I mentioned, is this corporate private-public collaboration, which basically just gives corporate entities that direct uh, access to the ears of city leadership. And Atlanta Committee for Progress was really involved in fundraising for the Atlanta Police Foundation in order to create Cop City. So Alex Taylor has been unapologetically and full throttly in support of Cop City being built. And Cox Enterprises owns Atlanta Journal-Constitution. So for a very long time, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution was running their own editorials and op-eds from outside writers calling for Cop City to be built focusing on rising crime, um, 
saying that this was the only solution in order to make this city safer without adding any information about the fact that the company that owned them was actively promoting this and fundraising for this cause. So um, I'm glad that your eagle-eyed producer noticed that they, after public pressure, they did start adding um, that footnote to the bottom. So yeah, I mean, if you Google information about Atlanta, AJC articles are the first to pop up. And yeah, I think they have been really soft on this. I, I think there's been there's been very little robust calling from that media space, asking for police accountability, demanding more information. I think the tendency has so often been that as soon as there's destruction of private property, as soon as there's a threat to police safety, um, that the whole media establishment really locks up and and it really becomes a condemnation of that kind of behavior rather than an insistence for for more information about the full story. So on that end, I, I would say that there's really been a vacuum in demanding police accountability. That said, there's a lot of journalism happening in Atlanta that isn't, you know, the big legacy newspaper. And I think those are spaces where we've really seen great in-depth reporting on this issue. So Timothy Pratt just wrote a great feature in Atlanta Magazine. David Peisner, I think somebody mentioned on a past episode of yours for The Bitter Southerner, both of them um, chatted with Tortuguita for their stories. Uh, Micah Herskind, who's at the Southern Center for Human Rights, wrote a great piece about the prison industrial complex in Atlanta for Mainline Zine, which is a great uh, great read. George, George Chitty, who's one of our great writers, has covered this. Atlanta Press Collective has their grassroots anonymous organization. So there are local journalists at work really pushing for this, but um, the big microphones, I would say, have not. I, I will say, though, I'm, I'm not without hope. We have a really great local NPR affiliate in Atlanta, WABE. They've often been really vocal pressing for police accountability and getting more information. So details are still emerging, and I want to be hopeful that, that our city will really make sure that people know the facts of what happened and that justice will be served um, once we figure out more of what happened. But yes, I will say that our uh, our Hallmark Legacy newspaper is thoroughly in the pocket of the Police Foundation. I think that is pretty undisputed at this point. You write that while many coalition members are certainly nonviolent, no centralized command enforces such a tactic across the movement. On the Defend the Atlanta Forest webpage, which operates anonymously, an FAQ asks whether the movement is violent. You then quote their response stating rather than get distracted by old tactical debates between violent and nonviolent methods defend the forest stop cop city has grown by embracing a much simpler and more intuitive framework defense and offense what do they mean by defense and offense so there was a longer quote there um that I wasn't able to include. So I encourage anybody who's curious to go to the Defend the Atlanta Forest website and read more. Basically, as they explained it, you know, defense is is anything that slows down the creation of Cop City that, you know, tangles up the gears of the machinery that creates this, whether that's, you know, nonviolent protest calling your city leadership, um, going out and demonstrating anything that just slows this down. And then offense are tactics that are more assertive in order to directly stop it from happening. So, you know, things like living in the trees and things that maybe include my read of what they were saying was that including this kind of destruction of property, you know, truly stopping the gears of the machinery at work. There was a, somebody told me an anecdote that a bulldozer came in to try to start 
tearing up some concrete and all of a sudden its hydraulic line just ceased to work and they they were had to abandon the bulldozer and come back another day so sort of a tongue-in-cheek nobody really knows how that hydraulic uh, line got cut um but sort of you know the implication being that those are some of the tactics that are at work so um and i've and i've heard from protesters across this movement that you know, there is an acknowledgement that some of these tactics have been employed by some of the people in this movement and and really being quick to say, you know, it takes a lot of different ways to slow this down. So that's not true across the board. I do think there are people involved in this movement who really feel like every rock that's thrown, every, you know, bulldozer that's destroyed um, is, is one more incentive for the police to come after this entire movement and, and really pushing for a completely nonviolent response. But this is a really diffuse group of protesters. I mean, there are people from all over the place. They're, the Sierra Club has been involved from the environmental angle. A lot of these environmental justice organizations have come at this from the environmental angle. You know, those are pretty big marquee nonprofits who are not engaged in this kind of on-the-ground activism and they are have been very quick to condemn any kinds of violence so you really see a lot of different voices here a lot of people engaged in a lot of different ways um you know and in the end i think the destruction of property and petty vandalism was the excuse that the police used to go in and, and try to tear these people out of these trees and you know murder them if they're still standing in the way but i think that they want this thing to be built. You know, it's basic. Many people told me that it's a big morale booster. It's a it's a toy. It's a playground. They feel sad. They feel demoralized. They are struggling with recruitment. You know, things really changed after 2020. And I think people really are frustrated with the police force. People want to see change. And so the police force in exchange wanted a condolence prize for, you know, for enduring that criticism and that's this. That's Cop City. That's 85 acres of playground to learn how to use urban warfare tactics. Um, and they really want it. So they were going to be looking for justifications wherever they could find them to go in here and start clearing these people out. And all to improve police morale. And some would argue that, well, if the police do uh, have low morale, then they're not going to be able to do their jobs as well. Uh, what do you think? Do you think that this facility will actually lead to the people of Atlanta and the people of the surrounding community being any more safe and secure? Being, uh, is this going to lead to the police doing a better job of protecting and serving the public? Uh, do I personally think that? I can't say that I do. I think that some people do. I think, you know, I it is tough. This is not this is not a community entirely of people who want to abolish the police. There are certainly people involved in this movement who feel that very, very strongly. There are a lot of people who say we still want safety. We just want it done in a different way. And I think that what's so tragic about this is that it just widens the gulf between the community and the police so, so, so much further. I mean, the miscarriage of of true justice in the murder of Tortuguita is the extreme end of that. But the miscarriage of democratic justice and the complete refusal to weigh, let people weigh in about this and then ignoring them when so many people in the community came out against it, you know, all of that just widens the gulf between the police and the people that they are allegedly sworn to protect. So it's really hard to imagine that after all of this, if Cop City does get bill, if eight or five acres get cleared for Blackhawk helicopter landing pads and fire burn units that this will somehow make people feel safer, make them physically safer. I just, I think it has the 
the tragic and unsurprising effect of just making everything harder um, to find any kind of continuity or common ground. And, and that's really the tragic story that we've seen all over the country, that this really incredible, hugely diverse movement against police brutality just in so many places all over the country has just had the opposite effect, has resulted in these training centers all over the cities, have resulted in beefed up militarized responses, you know, more SWAT teams, more, you know, armored vehicles, and no end to deaths of people in routine traffic stops, as we saw just this week in Memphis. So I think that at this point, it's so hard to imagine that this could lead to anything better for anybody in Atlanta. One last question for you, Rachel, and thank you very much for being on our show. Atlanta-based writer and editor Rachel Garbus posted the Welcome to the Hell World article, Stopping Cop City, the Murder of Tortuguita and the Trees that Got Us Here. She's on Twitter at Rachel underscore Garbus. You can find out more about Rachel at rachelgarbus.com. Thanks to Ty for suggesting Rachel as a guest and to Luke O'Neill at welcometohellworld.com for helping us connect with Rachel. Our final question that we have for each and every one of our guests is what we call the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you may hate to answer, our audience is going to hate your response. And I've got two different ones, and I don't know which one to use. Uh, let's just go, oh boy. let's just go with this one because it's just kind of straight up a news question, I guess. Do you know what Atlanta is like right now under the governor's state of emergency and calling in the National Guard? Have you heard from anybody or have you witnessed personally what Atlanta is like now that it's under essentially a military occupation? Ooh, great question. Um, I... Oh, you are going to hate my answer, Chuck. I was gone all weekend uh, celebrating my friends, two friends bachelorette party. They're they're queer. So that's still cool, um, which is why I'm so hoarse because I was <laughs> screaming at our friends doing drag king performances all weekend. So I have not been here. I have not heard. My guess is that if you want to see it, you could probably see it at the state capitol, which whenever you want to see where the, you know, the governor wants to to show off his um, beefed up security is usually around the Capitol where you have, yeah, I can imagine there's probably a bunch of National Guard <laughs> but service members lined up in camo around the, the gold dome with lots of extra fencing, just in case anybody wants to march down and give the legislator a piece of their mind. You also quote Kamau Franklin, uh, founder and executive director of Community Movement Builders, which has been organizing against Cop City since its inception, saying uh, the capitalist state wants and needs the police to protect itself. I don't think those tools will ever be disbanded without abolishing capitalism. So here's my other question from hell for you then. Is opposition to police, uh, it's opposition to police, opposition to ca- capitalism, is opposition to police seen by politicians and the public as anti-American. Oh, for sure. I think Georgia is, you know, there's a lot of us here who are excited to see Georgia become a blue state. Things are certainly shifting and incredible work by Stacey Abrams and, and other mainly black women activists have really started to change. But this is still Georgia. This is still the deep South. And this is still a state that's run predominantly by rich white men. That's just a fact. And there is still a real love for business, a real love for, you know, quote unquote, hard work up by your bootstraps. Governor Kemp has a a very successful story about his business that he started with a shovel in a truck. He tells it every time. Um, And that's really the, that's the Georgia story. And if you didn't build it yourself, 
if you, you know, if you don't own your own business, then you're doing something wrong. I mean, that's a real, the political narrative here is, is so much about that. And yeah, I think very embedded in, in a conservative understanding of, of what America is about, of what American values are, about who matters. You see this really interesting rhetorical split between Democrats and Republicans here talking about housing. Democrats call it affordable housing and Republicans call it workforce housing because only people who work deserve to live anywhere. And if you don't work, uh, then who who cares? So in the end, they end up talking about a lot of the same policies. Um, but the rhetorical split, I think, is really evident. That said, I, I don't want to give Democrats a pass here. I, I'm hearing Kamau Franklin in the back of my head. You know, there's been a lot of criticism of Democratic leadership in Atlanta. Atlanta is predominantly led by Democrats. It's predominantly black leadership. Um, but those folks really have uh, not stood up for people who are uh, protesting this. They really have not been representatives of the community in that sense. They really have been in lockstep with the police foundation, with corporate entities who really want this thing built, who really want to protect their own capital, folks in Buckhead who would really like to see this built so that they can sleep safely in their Versailles mansions. Um, yeah, I think that you really see leadership that for all it purports to be the Atlanta way, as they call it, this incredible racially diverse pact um, that supports business, but also supports the people. I think in the end, it's, it's pretty much always business that gets the last word. Rachel, thank you so much for being on our show. And I'm going to be bugging you in the future to not only have you back on, but maybe you can give us some more leads on people to discuss uh, Stopping Cop City on our show in the future. Atlanta-based writer and editor Rachel Garbus posted the Welcome to the Hell World article, Stopping Cop City, the murder of Tortuguita and the trees that got us here. She's on Twitter at Rachel underscore Garbus. You can find out more about Rachel at rachelgarbus.com. Thank you so much for being on our show, Rachel. Thanks, Chuck. Pleasure being here. Take care. Staring into the abyss so you don't have to, this is hell. You know, another thing that that whole campaign seems to be about is uh, challenging the power of rich white men, finally. It's finally being challenged, and that's when the police get really violent. If what you heard from Rachel Garbus on the battle over the lungs of Atlanta, those being their force, show your appreciation by becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus Patreon podcast, which streams live on Thursdays at 10 a.m. Chicago time. Podcast shortly after at patreon.com slash this is hell, or you can show your support for completely listener supported this is hell by visiting this is hell.com and you guessed it, clicking on support. When you do become a subscriber to This Is Hell on Patreon, not only do you get a special code word giving you a discount on all our merchandise at thisishell.com when you click on support, but you also get access to over 350 past Patreon podcasts with each and every one featuring a monologue by me in a classic interview that currently is not available anywhere else online. And we're going to be doing some more things on Patreon I'll tell you about in a little bit. Last week, I couldn't help thinking about the power of sound after an apparently beloved radio personality passed away. So on Patreon, I, I, I talked about it. I, that, the fact that I couldn't stop thinking about how listeners develop a personal relationship with the host of a radio show. Not like it's the first time I've ever heard of this or 
that this radio personality was the most beloved, but it made me think about our relationship with sound in general, whether it is the spoken word or music or nature or traffic or the jet flying over your head right now. Sound is a very, very powerful drug that, despite what we may think, we actively engage in rather than passively accept. With technology today that allows us to choose the sounds we're hearing at any given moment, at every given moment, we are curating our own soundtrack, allowing ourselves to be comforted by the same sounds we hear at home, during our commute, at work, and then going back home and when home again. The world of sound is nothing more and nothing less than another virtual reality which we create with our own imagination. Sound is a powerful drug comparable to the Blind Squid, but if you want to know what The Blind Squid is, you got to subscribe and listen to the Patreon podcast, and we're going to have a big announcement about our Patreon page later this week, so stay tuned in for that. Also on last week's Patreon podcast, sometimes we send interview requests with very little hope we will actually get any response whatsoever. Not even a rejection, just nothing. Worse than being ghosted and someone cutting off a communication, instead our interview requests are... <laughs> simply ignored at times. I must have sent 15 requests to eight different email addresses I had for the late great Hunter Thompson, but I figured he'd never respond, and he didn't. Then I started getting cocky because people like Christopher Hitchens not only agreed to be on the show, but was on a few times. Then Alex Coburn accepted our invitation and became a semi-regular guest. Then Noam Chomsky agreed and was on seven times, as was Howard Zinn. And every one of them, except for Hunter Thompson, would, had been writing and had writing published and posted at The Nation magazine, whose editor and publisher, Victor Novasky, I never thought would be on our show, but he agreed to be on way back in June 25th, 2005, when he was on to talk about his memoir, A Matter of Opinion. Sadly, Victor died a week ago today. He was 90 years old in his honor on Patreon. We played our interview with Victor. And people seemed to like it as the uh, conversation reminded many of our listeners of the glory days of the nation back in the late 90s and early 2000s. But the only way you can hear my reflections on the power of sound in a 2005 talk with nation editor and publisher Victor Navasky, who passed away last week, is by subscribing to This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash this is hell Lindsay, please remind us what is this week's question from hell and are do we have any responses so far this week's question from hell is what culture war battle should this is hell pile on to get popular ah we finally want to be popular yes we never wanted to but just now we decided to yes so you know last week when you asked me to post it i thought you meant on patreon so i posted it on patreon early and then there aren't really many responses on Facebook or Twitter right now, okay. but there are responses on Patreon. Sweet. Let's hear them. Uh, let me find them. Let me find them. <laughs> I'm still figuring out how to use this Patreon stuff. Okay. So... I am uh, as well, so we're in the same boat. Yes. So, uh, yes. Pay us money on Patreon so we have time to figure out how to use it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> we'll be incentivized. Uh-huh. Okay. So the question from Hell is, what culture war battle should this is Hell pile on to get popular? Our first response was from our very own Jeff Dorshin, and he says that the culture war battle this is Hell should pile on to get popular is... The struggle to make Karen the new N-word. Oh, man. 
I don't know. I don't know if it's the same. Uh, <laughs> ouch. Uh, so the next response from Adam Adam A is hashtag no ketchup. <laughs> do you know why that's? The yeah, thing? you know, I'm pretty sure that has to do with hot dogs in, in Chicago. Chicago. Uh, and I'm I'm down with this. You know, growing up in Arizona, everybody puts ketchup on their hot dogs. It's horrible. But here in Chicago, they put whole pickles on them, and exactly. that's way better. Have you ever been to Byron's? Yes. Oh, my God. I think that's the best dog in Chicago. I, I, for a while, I thought it was Superdog. Byron's is definitely the best if you get everything on it with the cucumbers and the pickle and the pickle relish and the must. Oh, my God. I love Byron's hot dogs. <laughs> yeah, it's like a salad on a hot dog. I know. It's so. great. It's great. And so <laughs> thanks, Adam A. I guess you're right. Hashtag no ketchup is something we would like to jump on. Any any other responses anywhere? Yeah, we have a lot on Patreon, actually. Oh, sweet. Uh, Drifa J says, so thank you to our subscribers. Uh, <laughs> Drifa J says, I'd go with parents' rights. That's in quotations. <laughs> parents' rights to censor kids' exposure to minorities. But on behalf of my roommate, Gen 4 versus Gen 5 ponies. Okay. <laughs> Uh, Jonathan I says, should you chuck, should you tuck a shirt in or not? Oh, that's a big culture war issue right now. <laughs> tucking or non-tucking. They're making a whole industry out of shirts that look tucked or untucking shirts. I don't know. If you're on team tuck your shirt in, that just seems kind of like white supremacy. <laughs> I'm just saying. Do what you want with your shirt. <laughs> you damn conformist. <laughs> Nick E says, I'm feeling so hopeless that I can't even think of one. Aww. But I'm going to keep thinking. Nick E, Aww. thanks for keeping thinking. Yeah. It looks like they finally got one. It says Nikki's next com next uh, comment says help to make sure that abortion pills are not intercepted by MAGA fascists. Oh, is that yeah. Is that happening? Uh, you know, yeah, in certain states you can't get abortions yeah. anymore, but you can't get like the there are other places that are sending pills to people or whatever. You know, on Saturday I went to show at Shuba's that was like a benefit for abortion rights you know i don't know the specifics of these political things but it was pretty cool they were handing out free plan b no no kidding at the event. Wow. yeah 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 is that even legal oh i'm sure it is <laughs> but in in illinois it is but uh i mean i got some because i it, like where else does that get handed out for free but i will say i'm like i don't know if i really need this because like there are weeds everywhere that do the same, same thing, thing right? <laughs> exactly but. so those will always be free until you know the government can figure out how to identify all these weeds i just love that it's called plan b of just the yeah that's why i call the plant version plant b <laughs> i see oh very yeah. clever on your part so, any yeah. more responses uh yes from steve t on patreon this is our last patreon response furries is all he says about what culture war should this is hell pile on to get popular what is it again furries oh furries that's oh, good it good lord we have one response on Facebook, but okay. I suppose we could save Let's that save it for, for tomorrow. tomorrow. Yeah, we've done all the ones on Patreon. Let's just stop at that point. Uh, uh, so uh, the person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell, you will win your choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want. You can check out all of our merch right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page. You can tweet it at us. You can email it to us, but we must have your answer by the end of this week's show. Following Jeff Dorchin in the moment of truth, we will be announcing this week's winner. 
We'll have more of your answers to the question from hell later this week. So last week we got an email from Stephen in Indiana, which we read on air, about the Stop Cop City campaign we were just discussing with Rachel Garbus. Stephen heard us read his email on air and wrote to us again. Stephen writes, Hey Chuck, thank you for responding to my email on air. I'm so glad to hear that you and producer Dan Hill are working to get someone on the show to discuss the Stop Cop City movement and the killing of Tortuguita. It is so important to me that a protester being killed uh, by police, by the police, doesn't become normalized, but somehow the story is going unnoticed or worse by damn near everyone, which is incredibly frightening to me. I've followed many stories and engaged in several protests myself following cop killings of innocent people, but this is the first time that I can remember the police in the United States raiding an activist camp and killing a political protester in cold blood since... I don't know, Fred Hampton? In the case of Tortuguita's killing, the police say he shot first, but all evidence I've read makes me suspect this is a total fabrication. Something tells me that in Fred Hampton's case, the media, police, and politicians similarly pushed the false narratives that he and the Black Panthers were violent and that the murder was justified. I recall you had interviewed a Chicago lawyer who worked for decades to bring Fred's case to light. Hopefully an investigation and some form of justice will be found sooner this time with Tortuguita. Don't feel obligated, although you are welcome to read my follow-up on air. I just wanted to say thank you. Solidarity is sometimes hard to come by in southern Indiana, but your virtual solidarity gave me the hope I needed today. Take care, Stephen, in Indiana. Stephen, uh, the Fred Hampton attorney you are thinking of is Flint Taylor, who recently hung out with us during our weekly Wednesday meet and greet. That's really a drink and think. This is hell office hours, which happen from 6 to 10 in the evening at the bar downstairs from where I'm sitting right now. Carrie's Lounge in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood at 2251 West Devon Avenue. Stephen in Indiana had suggested we talk to journalist David Peisner, someone who Rachel mentioned, uh, who has been writing about Stop Cop City at BitteredSoutherner.com, including his most recent article on Tortuguita's death called Little Turtle's War. Tortuguita means little turtle. However, we had difficulty finding any contact information for David, and that's when we got the email from Ty about Rachel's fantastic writing at welcometohellworld.com. And the rest is history. Speaking of history, our weekly segment, The Past Inside the Present, with Dr. Sebastian Vupper, who has a Ph.D. in history, is taking the week off as he gets settled into his new digs in Grand Rapids, Michigan. After moving last week from here in Chicago, tune in for Sebastian's return, hopefully next week. Manufacturing Descent since 1996, this is hell. Lindsay, who is our next guest here on This is Hell? Tomorrow, we have scheduled Lewis Gordon, author of Fear of Black Consciousness. Lewis is a professor of philosophy and department head at the University of Connecticut. So, uh, and we're uh, trying a couple of other people right now. We have a couple other requests out. I almost used the verb efforting, which people use in media, and it's a disgusting verb, so I'm trying not to use it. Uh, so we have a couple other interview requests out right now. We are talking to somebody who may come on to discuss what's happening in Peru. And this whole, this really big new study came out about lithium and lithium batteries and electric cars and their impact and the mining of lithium's impact on the environment and impact on climate change. And none of it is good news, especially for those of you like me who would much rather have an electric car than one that burns fossil fuels. 
Also, coming up later this week, we will have This Week in Rotten History. We will reveal what is happening on this week's Patreon podcast, which streams live on Thursdays at patreon.com slash thisishell. We'll hear a singular moment of truth from Jeff Dorch, and we'll announce the winner of this week's question from hell, as well as read all of the rest of the responses. The winner gets their choice of This Is Hell merchandise absolutely free. You can see all of our stuff right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. And we will be revealing next week's guests as well. I'm your Bitter Blind Broke Gap Tooth Radio Show podcast live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Thanks to Lindsey Gorey for producing, and thanks to Brett B. and Magnificent Me for their consistent support of This Is Hell, as well as the incredible, very generous contributions this week from Neil C. and Michael A. Neil C., who came all the way from Brooklyn to join us during last year's anniversary party, contributed to, as he put it, our drinking and thinking. So thank you, Neil. It was great meeting you. It was a very nice contribution that you sent. Uh, great meeting you last summer, and we hope you make uh, joining us for our annual party a regular thing. But instead of drinking and thinking with your contribution, we will be using your generosity to help our producers attain a living wage, which keeps going up. And the fight for 15 is way out of date, especially when you consider the growing living costs here in big cities like Chicago. And Michael A. showed his incredible support for what he what we do and wrote... I don't even know if you'll see this. This is for countless hours of education, a few laughs, and a swift kick in the butt. If only others would pay attention, they would feel the kick in the butt. P.S. We are all so effed. Methane explosions in the Arctic Circle are not programmed in the global climate models. Crap is full ratchet. We are 138. Thanks, Michael, again. Truly appreciated with listeners like you and Neil. We can get closer to providing producers with the living wage they richly and sorely deserve. For all our producers, Neil and Michael, many thanks. By the way, the reference by Michael A. of We Are 138 is a reference to the Misfits song by the same title with the lyrics, Do you think we're robot clean? Does this face look almost mean? Is it time to be an android, not a man? The pleasantries are gone. We're stripped of all we were in the eyes of Tiger. We are 138. So now, according to Misfits singer-songwriter Glenn Danzig, 138 was just something he and his friends thought up as kids. It was a code or something, meaning the ability to kill without thinking twice about it. We told you so. This is hell. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>